Hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. Not too much turkey, because uh, turkey will put you to sleep. Which brings me to our family Sunday joke. Steve gave me a joke to pass on. So a grandparent, I didn't pay for it. Maybe Steve did. So a grandparent asked their grandchild on the way to church, on the way to bringing them to church, why do we need to be quiet in church? And the grandchild said, because people are sleeping. (laughs) So I hope I don't put you to sleep this morning. Um, I may have put someone to sleep first service, so I apologize to them. Uh, And they always happen to be like in the front two rows. So no, I'm looking at you. Don't fall asleep on me. Um, we're going to be back in 1 Peter 3 today. We're going to kind of overlap a little bit of last week's with Pastor Steve and into chapter 4. So we'll be in 1 Peter 3, 18 through chapter 4, verse 6. But before that, I want to tell you a little story about my backyard. Um, we bought this old fixture-upper house uh, out in Santa Maria. And over the course of the last few years, we've been just trying to slowly fix it up as we go. And um, one of the areas was the backyard. The backyard, the backyard was just a mess. And... Um, Part of that mess included a perimeter around the back hole fence was about five feet of rocks. And um, they, they'd done the right thing. They'd lay down when they originally put all those rocks and they'd put down a layer of visqueen, like you know, plastic sheeting down under the rocks so the weeds don't grow up through it. But they'd lay down this big, lots of rocks. I mean, tons and tons of rocks. And wanting a little more grass area for my daughters and a little more area for them to play, I've, I've been slowly working my way uh, trying to clear out the rock. And so what I've been doing is, you know, if I took all the rock away, then the whole, there'd be just like this big culvert around the whole perimeter. So what I did is I got, uh, made a little kind of sifter and I take a shovel of rocks, put it into the sifter, sift out the soil, and then put the rocks into a bag, trash bag. And then once that trash bag is almost too heavy to lift, then I then take it and I either put it into the trash can or buy the trash can. So I'm sorry, trash man. Every time you come to my house, the, the machine just, you know, as it lifts up my trash can full of rocks. Um, and this one corner of our backyard, we decided to make, what well, it's not exactly a tree house. It's called a stump house because it's built on top of a stump. Long story. Uh, I'll let you know when it's finished. But we were digging out, and I was clearing out the rocks, and I noticed, I noticed something as I was sifting through uh, what was there. And what I end up finding, I end up cleaning up, and I found these two arrowheads. And it's the strangest thing. And, and I, actually, my daughter Elsie ended up digging a little bit more, and she found a few arrowheads. And it's like, why are there arrowheads in the corner of my rock? But how many arrowheads have I thrown away in these trash cans full? So now we're being extra careful as we sift through these rocks and as we like look for these precious things because these have become kind of like the precious things in my family. They're pretty cool. You guys can come check, the kids can come check it out afterwards. But what that has to do with today's sermon is this passage of scripture is a hard one to sift through. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 4, 6 is a lot of commentators say the most difficult passage in New Testament scripture to try to understand. So that is the scripture that we have before. So I want to sift through as we just get those precious things and we pull out the precious things out of the word of God. Uh, it is a passage some, sometimes preachers have said, uh, we're not, I'm not going to teach on this. I'm gonna, I don't understand it, so we're going to move on. But that's not the way the Harvest Church works. We're going to dig in. So uh, let me pray as we dig into God's word. Lord Jesus, we believe that all of your word is precious to us, Lord. 
But Lord, I, I pray that we would be able to pull out your word this morning, that there would be things that apply to our lives today, that we would just see the depths of your word and, and, and what you did for us, Lord, in your suffering and your death, burial, and resurrection. And what that means to us now and what that means to the unseen realm, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the, for the scripture. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Now, um, if, we were gonna, if I was gonna put a title on this sermon, I would call it Eternal Inheritance and Temporary Sufferings. Eternal inheritance, but yet temporary sufferings, because that is what the believers were uh, experiencing during the time that Peter wrote this letter. They were experiencing tremendous, tremendous suffering. This letter was written in about 64 AD at the height of Nero's persecution of the church. Uh, Christians were being slaughtered left and right. It seemed for those Christians as if evil was winning. It seemed as if uh, that, that Satan was taking his course, and that they were just, the Christians were going to be wiped off the face of the earth. Now, we know that was never what God was going to allow, but that's the way it seemed. And so, in this little short book, 1 Peter, the word suffering is used over 17 times in some form or another. Suffering is used 17 times in the short book, and that's because the Christians then had a lot of suffering. Now, I look at what they were experiencing in 63, 64 AD, and I look at what we experience now on the central coast of California in 2022, and we have it easy. We really do. And I wonder if that ease has almost put, put us to sleep in a sense. Because the suffering that they experience, we just have no clue on. But in some sense, I see the storm clouds are coming. Because we read the newspaper and we look out and we gather different things. We, we see that, man, man there, there's storm clouds in our future. And as the saying goes, batten down the hatches. As a, as a boat sees a storm a, a approaching, a ship sees a storm approaching, you need to get ready for that storm because it's going to hit. And so we look in, and we see the different things that are going on in our, in our world. And some of those things are the way that the progressive church is mounting an attack on, on us. The progressive church has moved away and they're teaching another gospel and they're looking back at us who fundamentally believe that the Bible is an inerrant, authoritative scripture, the word of God, and they say, oof, you guys are wrong. And so they're mounting attack. We look at things like the digital currency that's being pushed through the G20 and around our world, so much so that each of our individual finances are gonna be looked at, scrutinized where we put our money. And that's coming down in the way that now there's a new ruling that um, uh, any, any business or any expense on Venmo or Zelle or any of these things now has to be reported on your taxes. So there's a new, new form called ten, the 1099K that if you make more than $600 over a course of a year in a, in a small business or selling things, selling goods at your house, those, those now are now taxable. And what this shows is the government is getting more and more involved in where we put our money and where our money goes. And that's all involved in a digital currency. A digital currency that Wells Fargo and other banks are now um, testing, the, testing the waters with. A currency that can be uh, um, scrutinized, monopolized, turned on or turned off. And, it's, and it's, it's scary for the church in the way that that's going. There's, uh, there's the storm clouds that are the, the, the things that our president said at his, at his speech in the Philadelphia. 
There's br storm clouds brewing with the World Economic Forum and pushing this global reset in a one-world government. These things are storm crowds that are brew brewing. There's uh, the ESG and social credit scores as well. These are all things that are going to be coming against the church in the future. So now, now is the time to firm up your faith, to batten the hatches, and get ready for the storms. Christians in Peter's day knew what those storms felt like. There's a few common threads that run through this passage of Peter 3.18 through 4.6, and that is, one, the benefits of suffering. The greatest benefit was Jesus suffering for our sake. But there's also benefits for our, the suffering that we go through that allow us to figure out what's important and what's not. Another common thread that goes through this passage is spiritual warfare and our need for that. The final thing that I'll pull out, the, the final thread, would be the, the just judgment of Yahweh. That God is just in all that he does. And God follows his own laws and commandments and rules and regulations. So let's jump into 1 Peter 3, verse 18. It says this, for Christ, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison who were formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There's a lot to break out in this passage, and, and, and Pastor Steve did a great job last week and, that Christ suffered once for our sins. Christ suffered the full effect of our sins. The Bible teaches that sin always leads to death. The wages of sin is death. And Christ went to the full measure of the effects of sin, taking on himself death. But he didn't do that for any reason. He says that he put on, that, that he did that for making a way for the just, for the unjust. That God was perfect, that Jesus was perfect in his following of the commandments, the following of the law, that, that taking our place on the cross, he was able to, take the punishment for us, the just, for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. It's only through Christ's work, his death, burial, and resurrection, that we can be brought in to a relationship with the Heavenly Father. And then it says something very strange, because Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive by the Spirit. Jesus' body was laid in that tomb and his body was separated from his spirit as his spirit went to someplace else. And his spirit went and it says that he went and he preached to the spirits that were in prison. Now that word preached is different uh, than it will be used later in this passage in, 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 in chapter four. But that word preached, Steve said, is the word for proclaimed he wasn't preaching them. He wasn't giving them the gospel. He was proclaiming a message to them. And he went to the spirits that were in prison. And once again, we're reminded those spirits are the sons of God that left their first estate in the times of Noah and cohabitated with human women. Those were the spirits that were then taken and put in a prison. In Tartarus is what Second Peter says. 
So he went and preached to them. He proclaimed to them in prison. They were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering. So God is saying that not only do, uh, was the world suffering, but God himself was suffering as he was watching his creation uh, be tarnished. As he was watching his image bearers and the seed, the, the, the seed war that was going on, he was, he was long-suffering. He, he suffered as he watched these things happen. He was suffering as he waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls. So souls are different than spirits. The eight that were saved on the boat, they were saved through water. See, the judgment of God came upon the earth through the water that God brought and that destroyed all the sinful, wicked people at the time. And only Noah and his family were saved. They're the eight souls that were saved. And it's going to be later referenced as a type of baptism. But Jesus, he suffered once for sins. Jesus only had to suffer the effects of sin once, and he suffered them in full measure. In this passage, suffering and death are indistinguishable. Over the years, I've always pondered what happens after death. And I think that is still one of the questions that we ask. There's still things that we wrestle with. And that is one of the things that Peter here is now going to take head on. And we're going to look at it between the context of a lot of other verses. Where do people go when they die? Where do people go when they die before Jesus Christ was resurrected? And where do they go? Where do we go now as believers in Christ? We, we throw around the term hell a lot. And I think hell has more to do, and our understanding of hell has a lot to do with, with uh, Dante's Inferno and less to do with biblical scripture. So I want to dig in to what is in the afterlife, a biblical perspective of that. To do that, we look at the, Ju- the Jewish perspective at the time of Christ. So instead of using the word hell, they would have used the word, uh, the Old Testament word was Sheol. In New Testament, it's called Hades. And it was the underworld. It was the place where a spirit or a soul went after they died, after they departed from their body. And the question is, where did Jesus go for those three days and three nights until he was resurrected? Where did he go? Did he go straight to heaven? Because this passage, along with Ephesians, seems to say that he actually went as well into the ground, into the underworld. Didn't Jesus say to the thief on the cross, you'll, visit, you'll be with me today in paradise? Doesn't that mean heaven? Or does that mean something else? Let's check out Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. I'll have it on the screen, or you can check it out in your Bible. But it says this, But to each one uh, of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he let He led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. And he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all heavens that he might fulfill all things. It says this this verse that when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. And that's what Jesus did. He emptied Part of Sheol, part of Hades, but not all. 
And in taking those captives, he took them captive because they were to follow him. More on that in a bit. This understanding that Jesus first descended into the lower parts of earth just seems strange to us, that Jesus' body was laid in the tomb, but where did his spirit go? Well, the Apostles' Creed, which was written in the 5th century, uh, fifth century um, and has links to the, another creed that was written in the 4th century, says this. And let, let me just read the Apostles' Creed. It says this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried, and he descended to hell. And the third day, he rose again from the dead. He, descended, he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. It says, I, will, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic, or the universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. See, so the Apostles' Creed believes, they, they even believe back in the 5th century that Jesus went and he descended to hell. That seems so strange to us. And here we read this, this passage in P Peter that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits His, his victory over them. So did Jesus go to what we consider hell or Sheol Hades? Let's check out Peter's first sermon found in Acts chapter two. He's referencing back to David's Psalm 16 and he says this in his first sermon, making this connection right away. He says, men of Israel, hear these words in Acts chapter 22, uh, two, Acts chapter two, verse 22 and 28. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through you in the midst, as you yourselves know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands. You have crucified him and put him to death, whom God raised up, having loosened the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord, or I foresaw Yahweh always before my face. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of death. You, have made me, uh, you will make me full of joy in your presence." David is writing this about, G about Jesus, about the coming Messiah, about the Savior, who will not be, his, he will not, his soul will not be left in Hades. But while his soul is in Hades, he won't be left there, but it says his flesh will rest in hope. For those three days that Jesus was in the tomb, his body was in the tomb, his body was resting in hope for the, for the coming time when God would take him and not leave him in Hades. Leviticus 18 tells us why that is, why Jesus could not remain in Sheol or Hades. Leviticus 18, 4 and 5 says, You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God, or I am Yahweh your Elohim. You shall keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am Yahweh. 
So why was Jesus, why did Jesus not see corruption? Why was Jesus not left in Sheol or Hades? Because Jesus followed the commandments and statutes and God's judgments perfectly. He was perfect and just man. Therefore, he was, his body would not see corruption and he would not remain in hates. That's why Jesus, after three days and three nights, was resurrected, came back to life. Luke chapter 16 gives us a little more insight into the afterlife, and we'll do that, and then I'm going to show you a graphic. Luke chapter 16, verse 22 through 26 says this, So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to the Abraham's bosom. That's a strange thing, Abraham's bosom. The Greek word for bosom is uh, essentially a collapsus. It was, it was a fold in the garment that they wore. And often these folds, the Jews had these, these garments that they had folds that they can keep special or precious things kind of tucked away. We have pockets here. They would have kept their precious things close to their chest. So they were, this beggar was, and once again, Jesus never says this is a parable. Jesus says a statement. So it was that a beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out, the rich man cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send me Lazarus that he may dip the, fi the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, so son, remember that in your lifetime you received the good things and likewise Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those who are there can pass to us. So it shows that their understanding and their view was that Sheol or Hades had two compartments and they were separated by a great, great gulf. And one side was called Abraham's bosom or paradise. And the other side was Hades or what we might think of as hell. It was a, the place of torment. And they, Lazarus and the, the rich man didn't go to the bad place and the good place because one was rich and one was poor. That's not, one, that's not the point of it. The point of it was one had a hope in a coming Messiah, but he had to go to a place called paradise where he would wait until the Messiah would pay for the punishment of sin. The Lamb of God would take on the sin of the world. And there's a great gulf that's fixed. I think I have a graphic for this. So Todd Hampson, he wrote uh, a number of books, uh, uh, what is it? Do I have the picture of the book up there as well? The, la the Prophets, The Nonprofit's Guide to Spiritual Warfare. I highly recommend this book. So I asked him if I could use this graphic. He said, go for it. So Ton Hampson wrote this. Um, but let's go back to that graphic. So what we have here is this is a little bit of a, more of an understanding of the Second Temple Jew of what the underworld was like, where you went when you died. So Sheol had two compartments or two, two, uh, two places that you could go. You went to paradise if you're waiting for the coming Messiah, the coming one that would, that would take away the sins of the world. And there was a great gulf in between, and hell was the place of torment. The, the, the rich man was just longing just for even a drop of water. 
But he was trapped there. They were both trapped there. And then there's another place in the underworld called Tartarus that Peter refers to. And that's the place of the prison that is kept under guard and watch. That's a prison that there's no escaping. So when Jesus dies, his body goes into the ground and his spirit goes down into the underworld, he meets the thief on the cross in paradise. He says, today I'll be with you in paradise. And at some point in those three days, he went and made a trip to Tartarus to the worst of the worst beings during the pre-flood time. And he preaches or he proclaims to them, you are conquered. You think that, you, that in, in my death, you would have victory, but you actually just played into my own plan. And I am gonna conquer and you are done with. Your powers have been re- completely removed. You will never see the light of day. And then Jesus goes back into paradise and at some points takes those captives that were held captive by death who were waiting for the coming Messiah and he takes them and he takes them and he ascends up to heaven. Like a conquering king who has conquered another land, he goes and he sets those captives free and then those captives become his train of his, of his robe and, he, and as he leaves the place and there's celebration and often during those times, gifts are given, which is why Ephesians talks about that's when the giving of gifts were for the church. Interesting things. see, Jesus in his earthly body couldn't go into the underworld to set those captives free. He had to go in the spirit. But now what happens? If, that, if, that, if, that's, if you went to Sheol as a believer and that, before Christ died for your sins, and now that Christ has died and he has resurrected and he's ascended on high, where do the believers go? Where do you and I go? Where, where have our loved ones go? Where has my mom and dad gone who believed in Jesus? Well, that's why Paul clarifies in his letter to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 and 8 says this. He says, so we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. There's no soul sleep. There's no purgatory. Jesus Christ suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust. He cleared out paradise and brought them to heaven. And now when we are absent from our body, our spirit goes directly to the Lord. I've always tried to understand what that, what happened in the garden on that day of resurrection, on that Sunday you know, Mary's there. She goes to bring the, the spices and she's there and she sees a gardener and she's like, oh, where, where have you put the body of Jesus? Not knowing it was Jesus himself that she was talking to. And what did he say? He said, don't cling to me yet for I have not yet ascended to the Father. When Jesus came out of the grave, he put on his old body that had not yet seen decay, was only three days dead, 
And then he ascended to heaven. And when he got to heaven, he got his resurrected body. And with his resurrected body, he came back and he visited his disciples. And he was able just to appear into a room as if it wasn't locked, where the doors and the windows weren't closed. And that is the same resurrected body that we will receive when we take our last breath here on earth and take our first breath in heaven with him because he has done that. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Let's jump back in to 1 Peter 3. We're going to pick up where we left off at verse 21 and 22. There's also, it says, he says, there's also an antitype which now saves us, and that is baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. So is Peter trying to say that baptism is now what saves us? Has baptism now become this thing which we have to be believe and confess Jesus and then, be, and then be baptized so that we can be saved? No, what I believe he's saying is this, is that baptism is spiritual warfare. Baptism is pictured as a type. Baptism is now our allegiance to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, our allegiance through his resurrection. So that word good conscience could be uh, understood as well as an answer, or, or sorry, the answer could be used uh, as, as a pledge, but the answer of a good attitude or decision that reflects loyalty to him. That's what baptism is. Baptism is saying, I identify with Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. It's broadcasting to, in a way to the unseen realm, the unseen spiritual realm, a reminder to the fallen angels that Christ has conquered and we have taken his side. Michael Heiser said that every baptism is a reiteration of their doom, that is the fallen angels, their doom in the wake of the gospel and the kingdom of God. And early Christians knew this because in the early Christians, as before they were baptized, they would have to renounce any other God that they worshiped. It's spiritual warfare. And then on this passage, he says, Jesus has gone into heaven and has put at the right hand of God, having these angels and authorities and powers having been subject to him. Jesus was placed over all these supernatural beings. And that is what they are. Authorities and powers is how Peter explains them principalities and powers is what Paul would say through his messages. I would, I would really recommend for you to go do a deep study into power, uh, principalities and powers in the, in the Bible. If you want to know what's going on in this world in this age, principalities and powers is, is some things to study. Because you, once you get there, you'll understand that there's, there's an understanding of a biblical worldview. Deuteronomy 32 says this. Deuteronomy 32 in the ESV, it says, Remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. But the Lord, Yahweh's portion, is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. What this says is when God, when at the Tower of Babel, the worlds came uh, to set themselves against God. 
God has said to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And they said, we're going to come and we're going to make our, our own name for ourselves. And so at the Tower of Babel, God uh, confused their language and set them out, sent them out into 70 nations. And over those 70 nations, God put lesser gods over them. He put them, these lesser sons of God over the nations for them to be ruled by them. But God kept Israel for himself. That's why in the, in the Bible, there's, there's Israel and there's the Gentiles. Israel is God's allotted portion, according to Deuteronomy 32. But the Gentiles are the disinherited nations that God sent out at the, at the Tower of Babel. And it's those disinherited nations that God, Jesus came and he claimed the nations for himself in his gospel message. And we've seen that over the years is, is that uh, as the gospel goes out in the world, lives are changed and cultures are affected. Cultures are changed as well. But as God, as Yahweh is being rejected in our nation, these lesser gods are now returning and we can see this huge cultural shift in our own culture in 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 the States as well. See, to call what Yahweh says is evil and to call that good and to call good, evil, the ramifications for those things are huge. And Peter knew all about that. That's why he's going to call the believers to arms. So 1 Peter 4, verse 1 through 4, he says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself. That's a military term. Arm yourself. Arm yourself with the same mind, the same mind that Christ had. For he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that he may no longer, that he should no longer live the rest of his time for the flesh, for the lust of men, but for the will of God. He says, for we have spent enough time. That's an ironic term. Enough means more than enough. Or too much. We have spent too much time in our past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles. So it's the will of God versus the will of the Gentiles that's playing out in our lives. When we did the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness and lust and drunken revelries, um, drinking parties, abdominal idolatries, all these things are what we did before we Christ, and we did too much of it. Verse 4 says, in regard to these things, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. When you become a Christian, your life should be marked differently. You should be, have a different goal. You should have a different outlook. Everything should change as you become a follower of Yeshua. The old things have passed. You should no longer be doing the things that, you, that, the, that everyone did around you. And because of that, those in your pre-Christian days should be looking at you and being like, man, what's wrong with you? you everything's changed. And you're, you should be like, yes, everything has changed. And it says that they begin speaking evil of you. People aren't, if the world, worldly people aren't speaking evil of you, maybe there's something wrong. See, 2 Timothy 3 says this, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. 
and from, from such, people turn away. You can see that shift in our culture too. And I think what we don't realize is that the culture war that we see around us right now is just a proxy for the spiritual war. It's not just the culture war, it's the spiritual war that's setting itself against God. Setting itself against God in the way it's redefining marriage. The way it's redefining what it means to be a man or a female, a male or a female. That God said, this is male, this is female. Our culture is redefining what is life and when does life begin? It's not just the culture, it's a spiritual war. We have, as we have rejected God, we've, we've, we've lost our foundation as a nation. Isaiah 5 has a woe for us. Isaiah 5 verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil and put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And the world will, the world will speak evil of us. The world will hate us because it hated Jesus. 1 Peter 4 says they will give an account to him because once they, again, the believers were like, what do we do with all this? What do we do with all the evil that's happened around us, happening to us and around us? And that's when Jesus, that's when the, Peter writes this letter and reminds them they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There's no one who can escape God's judgment. He says when they will give an account, that is an accounting term. They will have to, the books will be opened. Our lives will be laid bare and God will judge the just and the unjust, the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Now this is a different preaching, a different proclaiming than is used in chapter three. This preaching is, an, is, 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 the, is the Greek word evangelism. Jesus, when he went down, he went down to, to heaven, or sorry, not to heaven, to paradise, and he proclaimed the message that he was the coming Messiah, and that was preaching to those who were dead that they might be judged according to men in the flesh. And how does that work? Well, the King James is a little clunky. ESV, let's look at the ESV. 1 Peter 4, 6 in the ESV says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those that are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So God went, Jesus went and preached to those that were held captivity by death in paradise so that they might live according to God in the spirit. Let me close with this final passage found in Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11 says, and remember, we're to arm ourselves with that same mind that Christ had. It says this, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made of himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in likeness of men. 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Today, that is, we are called to make a decision to set your mind to take a side. Allow suffering as it comes. Don't fight it. Don't look for it, but don't fight it. To continue to arm ourselves with the word of God and to fight the good fight in this spiritual battle that's raging around us and that plays itself out in our community and our culture. And lastly, to know that Yahweh is the judge and not one injustice will escape him. What I want to do, and I gave it in first service, I want to give an invitation. If you've never pledged your allegiance to Jesus today, I'm going to invite you to pledge your allegiance to Jesus. Going to my daughter's school every morning, you raise the flag, put your hand in your heart, and you pledge allegiance to the flag, right? What about pledging our allegiance to Jesus Christ? And if you've never made that decision to do that, to follow, be a follower of Jesus Christ, to, to um, identify with his death, burial, and resurrection, I'm going to make that invitation this morning. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means everyone. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrated his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And lastly, Romans 10 of the Romans road would take us to 10 verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So first service, I, I put it out there. Does anyone want to pledge their allegiance to Jesus Christ this morning? I invite them to stand up right in the middle of, of, of service, right in the middle of everyone, and say, I want to stand with Christ. So I'm making an invitation. Does anybody here want to, for the first time, accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior? For the rest of you, like we stand for the flag and pledge our allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, I want to invite you to stand and pledge your allegiance to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I'll do that through prayer. Jesus, we can stand because you have brought us and you invite us into the presence of the Father because of what you have done. We can only stand, Lord, because of what you have done on the cross, taking the sin of the world, the just for the unjust. So we stand here today. We're allowed to approach your throne room boldly, Lord. Lord, help us to know how to fight the fight the good fight, how to arm ourselves 
how to stand when, when you feel like falling. Lord, empower us by your spirit. You didn't leave us orphans, Lord. But you've given us your, the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, to make us be bold witnesses in the world around us, Lord. Jesus, it's all you. You're the name that's above every name. We confess that name this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.